Hey, I'm Gabriel Goldfeder. I'm a Jewish life consultant, a.k.a. rabbi. In the last episode, we saw that the king, who had only one son, desired to transmit the throne and the kingship to his son while he was alive. And he chose to do so not simply in an official fashion, but to have a party. And this was no solemn party. It included music and comedy, all manner of joy. And we continue, And when they became very happy, imagine that moment. Imagine that moment at a wedding or a gathering and the party goes to the next level. The dancing, it's as if we're not even touching the ground anymore. The joy, the love. And at that moment, Ahmad HaMelech, V'amar Livno, the king stood up and said to his son, Heyot shani chozeh bakochavim, Given that I am an astrologer, and I see that in the future you will fall or descend from the kingship. Therefore, see to it that you have no sadness when you descend from the kingship. Only be in joy. And when you will be with joy, I too will be in joy. Also, when you will have sadness, still yet I will be happy that you are not the king because you are not fitting to be the king. Because you're not able to hold yourself in joy when you descend from the kingship. But when you will be with joy, then I will be in much greater joy. I like to look at this part of the story as describing three layers of priority. The lowest priority is to be the king. And that question of the son's ability to retain the kingship is addressed immediately. I see by my astrology that you are going to fall from the kingship. So let's get that out of the way. If that were your only priority, 
or the highest priority, then you will be miserable. But the king conveys immediately that a higher priority than retaining the kingship is joy. Holding on to joy and not falling into sadness is a higher priority than remaining the king. In this, the king describes and conveys quite clearly a joy that is not dependent on what is happening. It is not dependent upon success, but rather it seems it's dependent on a choice that a person makes. The highest level priority, though, for the father king goes beyond even his relationship to his son. And this, I believe, is a little startling. My sense is that if you asked the average Jewish person what the highest values are, they would put family somewhere near the top. And this king is not devaluing family at all. As he told his son, if you can be happy, then I will be very happy that you are happy, despite having lost the kingdom. But what's surprising is that family is not the ultimate priority for the king. He says outright, if you fall into sadness, then I will be happy that you are not the king. We have no indication that this king is a tzaddik, a righteous person, or that he is right. But in this story, Rabbi Nachman presents the question that a person, a reader, might choose to wrestle with. What values lie beyond even family. Imagine a child going to their parent and saying something like, I got fired from a job or my partner broke up with me. And the parent says, why? What happened? And the child conveyed information about what happened that included disclosure that the child had not acted in accordance with the values that are prioritized by the family, or at least by the parent. And it would be shocking if the parent would exult and say, I'm so glad that you got fired or that your partner broke up with you because the thing that you did to cause that to happen is so antithetical to my or to our values that your loss here upholds and supports the values with which I identify. This is a pattern that repeats occasionally in the Tanakh, 
in the stories of the people that populate the Bible where a higher value is invoked even though it causes pain, even though it, and I would even say especially because it disrupts an assumption that there's a sort of favoritism. For example, when Moses hits the rock and then God says, you are not going to be able to go into the land of Israel because you did not sanctify me and my name at that time. This shows that God's priority of having God's name be sanctified is of a higher order of value than God's love for and appreciation for Moshe. So while this is a very painful and I would say mysterious aspect of the story of the Jewish people and their leaving of Egypt and their journey to the land of Israel, in a certain sense, it serves a great purpose of reminding us that God's values transcend the ostensible favoritisms that we might assume would be in place. We might assume that those favoritisms would override those values. And it turns out that this is not so. And this calls into question or centers the conversation around whether our greatest service is expressed through love of our children that overrides our ultimate values or whether or not we ultimately serve by emphasizing those values and whether or not our children and our students benefit from that when they see in their parents and teachers and mentors and role models a devotion and a commitment that is even more intense, even more solid than the relationship that they have between parent and child or between teacher and student. And I wonder out loud which values we would say are of greater import than the relationship we have to children and students. In our story, it's joy. I'm not sure it's exactly fair to characterize joy as a value. It might be more accurate to describe joy as an assumption of sorts, as an accepted basis upon which all other aspects of life must be built. So it's noticeable that the king conveys this at a party at the height of their joy. Just when the party reaches its pinnacle, just when the feet are no longer touching the ground, just when the dancing gets that intense, just when the people feel so much love and connection for each other, the king breaks the news. And it might be that he wants his son to access the joy that they're feeling at that moment and to internalize it into his body and into his experience and to say this, this is what I want you to feel. And not only that, but I want you to know that your loss of the kingship, which is inevitable, this feeling you're having right now is still available to you. I guarantee it. I am telling you that this level of joy is not dependent upon your success and is not subject to debate 
just because you have failed or because you have lost something. And the king's wisdom goes even deeper. By guaranteeing to his son the inevitability of loss, he allows the son to understand, Meroch, from the beginning, that it won't be possible for him to retain the kingship. And that allows him to let go of responsibility for losing the kingship because it's inevitable. And he can stop blaming himself for that and rather use his energy towards building up his reservoir of joy such that when it is lost, and it will be lost, he won't be surprised. Rather, he'll remember to check his toolbox and he'll find his joy in there and that will allow him to remain in joy even at that time of loss. And one final question. Why do this? Why does the father king make his son the king and then tell him that he will not retain the kingship? It seems that embedded within this story is the strong message about the enormous gap between those two priorities. Being a king is important. It's a vast responsibility, but not nearly as important as the joy that the father wants his son to have. It seems we are born into a life where loss is inevitable, and we know that. There's no mystery there. And accepting that allows us to embrace an approach to life that allows us to hold that without falling. Mm -hmm.